Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 94, Nightbane and Everway. This week, we dive into a couple of games that haven't necessarily been the top-selling games at a point in time, but their popularity with their loyal fans have kept them being played around the world for over 25 years. So... Let's crank up the tour bus and get to this week's first topic. Nightbane takes its players into the genre of dark fantasy role-playing. It was created by C.J. Carella with Kevin Ciambietta, Kevin Hassel, and Jason Bay, also credited as designers. It was first released in August of 1995 from Palladium Books, and it clocked in at a hefty 240 pages and a softcover presentation, which, by the way, was not that unusual in the mid-1990s. When the game was first published, it was released with the title Night Spawn. Needless to say, if you've got a copy of the game with that title, it's exceptionally rare and should fetch you a pretty penny if you're looking to sell. The reason for the rarity is that shortly after release, Palladium was forced to recall that first printing in order to change the title to Nightbane. The reason? Lawyers for Todd McFarlane, the creator of the Spawn comic book, threatened suit against the company due to the game title being a little too close to McFarlane's creation, especially when the subject matter was taken into consideration. Speaking of similarities, numerous critics over the years noted that Nightbane has strong similarities with the works of Clive Barker. These critics specifically named the novella Cabal from 1988 and the movie made from that book, Nightbreed, which released in 1990. Nightbane went out of print in the early 2000s, but Palladium was unwilling to completely let the game die, especially as fans of the game clamored for more material. In 2009, Irvin Jackson and Mark Oberly were tapped to write the book that brought Nightbane back to game shops around the world, Nightbane Survival Guide. And as of this recording, Nightbane is still being printed and sold around the world, so check out your local game shop if you're interested, or check out the Palladium website, palladiumbooks.com. All right, so with our history out of the way, no matter how brief that might be, let's get into the game itself. Nightbane has been advertised over the years as a modern, urban, dark fantasy. In it, a secret cabal of supernatural beings from other dimensions, known as the Night Lords, accompanied by their shape-shifting minions, have taken control of the world's governments and corporations. Quietly, of course. It's up to the Nightbanes, which are the player characters in the game, to stop them. In the Nightbane world, all of this freakiness occurred on March 6, 2002 at 6.02 a.m. The world became shrouded in unnatural darkness caused by the Night Lords. Thousands of people suddenly transformed into monsters, but once that darkness fell they returned to their human form. Now they have the ability to shapeshift from human to monster form at will, and they're known as the Nightbanes. Now here's the thing. Even though the game was promoted with the concept of players playing shapeshifters, that's not the only option they have. They can choose to be vanilla humans, though why you'd want to do that is rather beyond me. There's also the option of being a vampire, which, while a cool choice, again, isn't something I necessarily think I'd do in this game. The other choice now is one I'd have to think about, the mysterious angelic beings known as the Guardians. One final point on what I'm calling the character race, though I know that's not quite the right word, the default form for a shapeshifter is their human form, known as the facade in game terms, 
When they're ready to shift, their monstrous form is, in a word, horrific. But I said, let's get into the game, which you know means I want to pop the hood and see what makes this baby purr. Nightbane is built on Palladium's Megaversal system, which the company tends to use for most of their games, though Rifts is probably the one you've heard of the most. Another popular game that uses this is Beyond the Supernatural, which we're looking to cover in a future episode. The basics of this system, though, are this. It's a roll-under system for skill checks, but a roll-over system for combat checks and saving throws. I think we pretty much all know how that works by now, but let's hit it real quick for the kids in the back. Roll under means you need to roll equal to or below your target number to succeed, while high roll means, you got it, roll equal to or above your target number. This is also a percentile system, and it has a rather complex system to determine damage, as there's a virtual alphabet soup of abbreviations for various things not only in the category of damage, but in other areas as well. Character creation works much like it does in other systems. Dice are rolled and results are put into eight basic attributes Nightbane utilizes for its characters. From there, formulas are used to take bonuses from those attributes and either modify skills or engage in combat depending on the need. Now, I cannot stress enough that this system has a lot of tables and they come into play when designing the shape-shifting character as the player has the option to either roll randomly on different tables or just choose what they want off the tables. And what are the possibilities? You can mix and match animal features with alien physiology, toss in some machine parts, and you know what, just grab a copy of the game if you're curious about this. Now magic exists, as does a variation on psionics called psychic abilities in Nightbane. Six different Nightbane books have been published over the years. Book one, Between the Shadows, got its second printing in 1998. Book two, Nightlands, got its second printing in 1999. Book three, Through the Glass Darkly, has only had one printing to this point, and that was in 1997. Book four, Shadows of Light, was published in 2003. The Survival Guide came out in 2009. And the most recent release is Dark Designs, which dropped in 2017. Now, this is normally where I drop in a review, wrap up the topic, and get ready to move on to the next. But you've no doubt checked the timer and realized we're way too early for that. And you're correct. See, during my research into Nightbane, I kept running into sites selling the rulebook, which is a common thing for me for pretty much every episode of this show that I do. However, as I start to dig deeper, I start finding some very interesting articles out there. And one of those definitely got my attention, and it's on the tvtropes.com website. I wish I could give you the date it was written and the name of the author, but I don't have those. What I do have are a list of some of the tropes their staff noted in the game, and I'm pretty sure this list covers all of the books in the line. Now, there are some that are just flat out silly, but they will also give you a better idea of the game itself. So I figured, why the hell not? And I'm not going to give you anywhere near to being close to all of them. Believe me, I printed them out and I had like six pages of them. I'm just going to pick a few that either got a laugh out of me or I just went, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Animated Tattoo. Some Nightbane have moving tattoos on their skin that reflect their emotions and their mental state, while others have ones that can be directly controlled and altered by the Nightbane themselves. Okay, this next one is going to stir some shit. Just listen to the whole thing before you decide to at me. The bad guys are cops. 
Most of the world's police force was replaced by doppelgangers or corrupt humans by the Night Lords. Good cops still exist, but they are a very small minority. Cursed with Awesome. Nightbanes may have some freakiness shame-inducing powers, except they're in complete control of them and may do with them what they will. Hell Bent for Leather. This is a dark urban fantasy series, originally printed in the mid-90s, featuring demons, monsters, and vampires. Pretty sure it's required by law that at least a quarter of the cast dress in leather jackets or bondage gear. Nightbane can also have leather skin studded with metallic decorations as an optional physical trait. There's one called Monster Clown, but as I know a couple of listeners with clown phobias, I'll spare you that one. Just watch Killer Clowns from Outer Space if you're curious. The term muggles is used here, and much like in Harry Potter, it means normal vanilla humans. Anyway, the list is like six pages long. If you're interested in checking it out, head over to tvtropes.com and look up Nightbane. (laughs) It's definitely worth the read. Now, I do have a review of Nightbane to share with you, and it comes from the March 1996 issue of Dragon Magazine. Rick Swan did the honors, and he found the rules as published in the original release, quote, dense and stodgy, end quote. The combat rules were, quote, a series of math problems based on structural damage capacity and a host of modifiers, a pain in the neck, end quote. He did love the Morphous creation rules, which he used to create, quote, a bat-winged humanoid toad whose skin was covered with razor blades, end quote. He did voice another disappointment, stating that, quote, the book doesn't provide much in the way of adventures, end quote. He gave the game a four out of six rating and ended with, quote, richly imagined, exorbitantly detailed, Nightbane is like a splatter film designed by philosophy majors. It's a cheesy, brainy delight, end quote. Next up on this week's tour is Everway. From the mind of Jonathan Tweet, Everway was first published by Wizards of the Coast in 1995. For those paying attention, that was two whole years before WotC purchased TSR and became the custodian of D&D. However, if you own one of these initial releases, you won't see the WotC logo as they released it through their Alter Ego brand. And that's the name, Alter Ego. No, I'm not doing a who's on first routine, so stop it. Before I dive further into the uniqueness that is Everway, I wanted to shout out the rest of the brilliant developers who worked with Tweet to bring Everway to the market. Jenny Scott, Aaron Anderson, Scott Hungerford, Kathy Ice, Bob Kruger, and John Tynes. Additionally, more than a dozen different illustrators worked on that first product, and the result was artwork that was worthy of being framed and hung on the wall. Now, Everway is a fantasy role-playing game. However, it's so not the standard fantasy role-playing game. Alter Ego marketed it at the time as a visionary role-playing game, which I'm sure confused the hell out of a lot of gamers at the time. Everway has the distinction of a number of firsts in the game market, but I'll get to those as I move along in my description. One of the things we need to note is that Everway has a multiverse setting, which I'll expand on when I get to the setting in a few minutes. Short form on this is that many worlds of the game cover different fantasy settings from literature and a lot of settings that were created specifically for the game itself. Okay, so I said Everway has a few firsts. I do need to note that these are firsts in a commercial game, as it's been argued over the years that others might have been doing some of these things in their home game years before, but you know how those stories go. Anyway, let's look at some of those firsts. 
It was really the first game to include more picture-based or visual source material than actual dialogue. It was also the first to include those materials as part of the character creation process. Tweet also came up with some new gaming terms that have since entered the lexicon of pretty much every gamer out there, and it was based on the Fortune deck, which I'll get to in a moment. Tweet brought the idea of karma into gaming as an adjudication term, as it allows the GM to make decisions based on the abilities and tactics of the character and the internal logic of a fictional situation. He also brought drama into the process, with adjudication being what moves the story along. Fortune is also a term he brought into this process, allowing for fate or a random card draw to determine the outcome. By the way, a lot of GMs, myself included, use the fortune method to this day, though we use dice instead of cards. But there's a reason the cards get mentioned so much when you talk about Everway. It's a diceless system. Now, if this were a YouTube or TikTok video, that would have been the sentence that got the record scratch sound effect afterwards. You know, okay, that was shit. I won't do that again, I promise. To this day, there aren't a whole lot of diceless systems out there, or at least there aren't a lot of diceless systems out there still being regularly played. The fortune deck is what helps to drive the action along frequently and will give it its own moment in the sun in a few moments. If you've played the game before, you know that the rules are quite flexible, which is a common trait that runs through all of the games Jonathan Tweet has developed over the years because he likes to focus more on the playing of the game itself and not the time suck of checking rules and making sure they're being followed. Now that 1995 release was a box set and it consisted of a 162-page player's guide, a 64-page GM's guide, a 14-page primer for the fortune deck, 90 vision cards, which I'll describe in a moment, 36 fortune cards, 4 source cards, 6 questy cards, 24 full-color character sheets, 2 large full-color maps, and plastic trades to hold all the cards. And a partridge in a pear tree. No, sorry. The vision cards have beautifully detailed fantasy scenes and also have leading questions on them. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen in this situation? Vision cards, along with the source and questy cards, were designed to allow the luck of the draw, along with great roleplay, to drive the narrative of the game along. Wizards of the Coast didn't sell as many copies of this release as they'd hoped to, and within a year they'd abandoned the line, which was the point at which they dumped pretty much everything that wasn't a collectible card game. Obviously, we know they got back into the tabletop role-playing game in the biggest way they possibly could, but that's another episode that we've already done. Rubicon Games purchased the rights from Wizards of the Coast not long after that, and while they published a number of supplements for the game, they also eventually abandoned it as well. Gaslight Press stepped in in 2001 and bought the game, but they had mixed luck with it and they eventually let it go as well. At this moment, the game belongs to the Everway Company, which was created specifically to publish Everway. As I'm recording this episode, they've got a Kickstarter going to publish a silver anniversary box set and are also working on the long-awaited second edition of the game. If you're interested in the Kickstarter or the second edition, check out their website, everway.com. All right, so with the history and background out there, let's get into our usual format style and dig a bit deeper into the setting. The Everway setting revolves around heroes who can sphere walk. 
As you might have guessed, that means they have the ability to travel between worlds, which are known as spheres in the game. Now, to really try to confuse things a bit, each sphere typically has several realms. The city of Everway, for example, is located in a realm called Roundwater on the sphere Four Corner. Confused yet? <laughs> Let's see if we can't accomplish that. In all of the research I did for today's show, I noted that Roundwander is the only realm in Four Corner that actually gets described with any detail in the book. And while Everway gets some descriptive love as well, it's not nearly as detailed as some of the cities we've seen in other games. Most of the other spheres, realms, and cities get maybe one-sentence descriptions, and one of them gets a bit more love. But that's because it's the setting for the sample adventure in the box called Journey to Stonekeep. Now, don't let that lack of description dissuade you from the game. The creators went into great detail when it comes to the fantasy aspects of the game, as they specifically banned the use of advanced technology in the creation process and basically became cultural anthropologists in breaking down and describing how people in the various spheres live. Art and language are given the same reverence in the writings as magic. There's also a focus and stance towards realism in the setting, as the large majority of inhabitants of the various spheres are human. And for the most part, the physics of the game are realistic. Like I said, for the most part. Normally, this would be where I'd break the game down and look at what makes it tick. But since the engine is a Jonathan Tweet original, I think the best way to get a feel for how the game runs is to check out character creation, then take a run at the fortune deck. So let's look at how one creates a character for every way. I gotta be honest, it doesn't get a whole hell of a lot easier than this. Each character begins with 20 points to divide between four element scores. And if I have to tell you what the four elements are, we are in serious trouble here. What I will say is that each of them somewhat equate to abilities we're accustomed to seeing in role-playing games. Fire is strength, water is perception, air is intelligence, and earth is endurance. Which, if you think about that for a minute, makes a hell of a lot of sense. The scores range from 1, which is considered to be pathetic, to 10, which is considered godlike. Needless to say, the basic character would have fives across the board. Of course, there's always that one player who has to have a 10 in one of their scores, which means the other three suffer. Each of the elements has a specialty, and that specialty allows the character to get a plus one bonus. Let's use the example I found in my research for this. A hero with five air who has the air specialty of writing could write as if their air score was six. And for those wondering about challenge levels for conflicts and contests, here's another example from my research. A five fire, five earth hero should be able to beat two four fire, five earth enemies, whether fighting them or running a race against them. Doesn't mean they're faster than them, it just means that, statistically speaking, they're superior to them in a certain way. Let's look at powers. Each character has them, and they represent unusual abilities. They cost between 0 and 3 points, and that's because they're considered to be frequent, major, or versatile. The example I think that's the best to use would be a cat familiar. It could be argued that you should have to spend three points to get it, since it's not only frequent, because it's around pretty much all the time and has a lot of helpful uses, but also versatile, because you can use it to send messages or fight or whatever. The rules concerning power costs are pretty loose, so it's up to the players and the GMs to work that out. 
Each character gets one zero point power for free. After that, even if the power costs zero points, they have to pay at least one point to get it. Magic's another DIY subject. If the character would rather have magic than powers, they need to design their own magic system. They first choose the element that forms the base of that system and its theme, if we're going to be honest here. Then they spend points accordingly. That stat would have a 1 to 10 rating and it cannot be higher than the element it's based on. It's also suggested that the magic power be limited with the GM and player again working together to make that work. It's also suggested that magic not be a part of the game at all and certainly not for new or inexperienced players. Next, we get to the character's personality traits. Again, this is a different system than what most of us are used to. They're based on the game's fortune and vision cards. Players are to choose one or more vision cards and base their background on them. They also draw three fortune cards, representing a virtue, a fault, and fate, with fate being a challenge for them to face at some point during the game. Now, unlike the vision cards, these fortune cards can change over time to match the changes the character makes throughout their life. Last up is equipment. Now, this is an abstract concept in the game. There, there really aren't rules for this. I mean, there really aren't rules for equipment costs or for carrying capacity or combat stats. Again, these are things that GMs and players need to work out together. The rules do suggest, however, that powerful items like an invisibility cloak should be treated as a power with the player having to spend points on it. Okay, so I promised a closer look at the fortune deck, so let's do that here. I mentioned earlier that the GM considers karma, drama, and fortune when making decisions in the game. Fortune requires a draw from the fortune deck, and that is based on the basics of a tarot deck like the fool or death. However, the fortune deck also has cards unique to it, like Drowning in Armor and Law. Much like a traditional tarot deck, the cards of a fortune deck have symbolic art on them, and the art has two complementary meanings depending on which way the card is held. You'll need the book to get a full explanation of the meanings printed on them, so just keep that handy. Now, the rules aren't specific as to when or how often the GM needs to draw fortune cards, nor whether or not the GM is obligated to show them to the players. Again, that's GM fiat. And while it's a tool for the GM to use, the rules treat it solely as a storytelling device, noting specifically in the rules that they aren't advocating actual fortune-telling or supernatural concepts. All right. One more thing on Everway before we wrap up, and that's a review. Rick Swan once again gets the honors, and his review was in the December 1995 issue of Dragon. He noted, quote, Everway is so far out of the mainstream, it's barely recognizable as an RPG. First off, it has no dice. It has no tables or charts. A deck of cards directs the flow of the game. Monster bashing, treasure hunting, dungeon crawling, bye bye Everway is pure narrative, end quote. Swan did like the production values, calling them, quote, first class, end quote. But he wasn't a fan of the maps. He also had this to say about the diceless system, quote, It makes for a brisk game, and Everway, to its credit, plays at blinding speed, end quote. He was concerned about the amount of pressure placed on the improv skills of the GM and players, and gave Everway a 4 out of 6 rating. And with that, we've come to the end of today's show. 
Next week, I'm going to take a trip back in my own personal Wayback Machine as I discuss some of my memories of gaming. Why? Sometimes I feel that we need to take a look back before we move forward. Plus, I'm feeling a bit nostalgic these days. Now, if you want to hear some of your memories in the show, hit me up. Also, don't forget, we're still taking submissions for our best module poll we're conducting for a future episode. Hit me up on the socials or through email and let me know what you think is the best module ever or modules, as many as you'd like. In the meanwhile, check out our other show, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we do some serious information crunching to see what our group knows about the goings-on with Garson Tactical and Jessup Chemicals, and we'll work out what the group's next options are. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we get a little nostalgic and talk about gaming memories. I've got quite a few of them. And if I get some from you, we'll relive those as well. That means you're not going to want to miss it. That's next week, though. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role Playing History.